Hey, it's time for some children's church. And so four-year-olds, pre-K, kindergarten, up through fifth grade, uh, we'll see you guys later on. Have a good time. And if you have your Bible with you today, would you please open up to the book of Genesis? We're going to be in Genesis chapter 6 as we continue our study of Genesis chapters 1 through 11. We've just got a few weeks left. Uh, and so thank you so much uh, for having a Bible open if you need one. There's a Bible and a pew rack in front of you. And we're reading a long passage together this morning. So I want to encourage you to have a Bible open so you can track along and see where we are uh, in the story. Uh, I'm grateful for Kendra's leadership in our worship this morning. Our worship director, Jennifer Bull, is on a much-deserved vacation this Sunday and next Sunday. Grateful that she's getting rest. Um, and uh, it's a real challenge, just a little insider talk. It's a challenge for Jennifer to get time away because uh, she's hard to replace. Me, I'm easy to replace. <laughs> but what Jennifer does uh, takes exquisite skill. And so I'm grateful for Kendra's help this morning and next Sunday for John Sargent uh, Jr.'s help and uh, grateful for your voices that bring it all together, your beautiful choir. And so it's been great to worship with you this morning. We're going to continue in worship by studying God's Word together uh, in Genesis chapters 6 and 7. Uh, today we're going to study a very familiar story. It's the story of Noah's Ark. But when was the last time you really read this story? Have you ever really read this story? Because when you read it, what you come to find out is that it is not about a quaint old man in his floating zoo. This is a story about the judgment of God on sin. It's a startling story. It's shocking. And, and I think it was meant to be this way for every generation of readers. It's not more shocking for us than it would have been for the original audience. I think it packs the same punch. And who was the original audience? Do you remember? The original audience is the people that Moses is leading towards the promised land. God's people, Israel. They have left slavery in Egypt. They have not yet arrived at the promised land. But on their way, Moses writes this account of things. And why do you think it's important for them to have this account of the flood? Well, I, here's why I think it's so important for God's people then and God's people now. This story is not just about a one-time instance of God's judgment on sin. They understood then, as we do now, that there is a judgment on sin that awaits. We live in a world that is under the judgment of God. And so the story of Noah teaches us, as it taught them, how we are to live in this world under the impending judgment of God on sin. What's required of God's people? What posture do we take in this culture? How do we live with God in a world that is going to face his judgment? Our approach to the passage this morning is to look through the eyes of Noah, to understand as Noah did, to learn from Noah how it is that we are to live in a world that is going to face the judgment of God for their sin. And so this morning we're going to read and study the first half of the flood account. Uh, and in that account, judgment is the major theme that's on display. And so my purpose in preaching this passage today is to instruct you how to live in this world that's going to face the judgment of God. 
We've got a long passage to read. It starts in chapter 6, verse 9. I want you to follow along with me. We're going to read all of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7. These are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. And Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with wickedness. God saw how corrupt the earth was, for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. Then God said to Noah, I've decided to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it with pitch inside and outside. This is how you are to make it. The ark will be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. You are to make a roof, finishing the sides of the ark to within 18 inches of the roof. You are to put a door in the side of the ark. Make it with lower, middle, and upper decks. Understand that I am bringing a flood, floodwaters on the earth, to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark with your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. You're also to bring into the ark two of all the living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of everything, from the birds according to their kinds, from the livestock according to their kinds, and from the animals that crawl on the ground according to their kinds, will come to you so that you can keep them alive. Take with you every kind of food that is eaten, gather it as food for you and for them. And Noah did this. He did everything that God had commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, enter the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you alone are righteous before me in this generation. You are to take with you seven pairs, a male and its female, of all the clean animals, and two of the animals that are not clean, a male and its female, and seven pairs, male and female, of the birds of the sky, in order to keep offspring alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now I will make it rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing I have made I will wipe off the face of the earth. And Noah did everything that the Lord commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood came and water covered the earth. So Noah, his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives entered the ark because of the floodwaters. From the clean animals, unclean animals, birds, and every creature that crawls on the ground, two of each, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark just as God had commanded him. Seven days later, the floodwaters came on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the sources of the vast watery depths burst open. The floodgates of the sky were opened, and rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights. On that same day, Noah, along with his sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's wife and his three sons' wives, entered the ark with him. They entered it with all the wildlife according to their kinds, all livestock according to their kinds, all the creatures that crawl on the earth according to their kinds, every flying creature, all the birds and every winged creature according to their kinds. Two of every creature that has the breath of life in it came to Noah and entered the ark. Those that entered, male and female of every creature, entered just as God had commanded him. Then the Lord shut him in. The flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water surged and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. 
Then the waters surged even higher on the earth, and all the high mountains under the whole sky were covered. The mountains were covered as the waters surged above them more than 20 feet. Every creature perished, those that crawl on the earth, birds, livestock, wildlife, and those that swarm on the earth, as well as all mankind. Everything with the breath of the spirit of life in its nostrils, everything on dry land died. He wiped out every living thing that was on the face of the earth, from mankind to livestock, to creatures that crawl, to the birds of the sky, and they were wiped off the earth. Only Noah was left, and those that were with him in the ark, and the water surged on the earth 150 days. It's a shocking story. How do we approach it? What should our posture be to this story? Two ways we need to approach this story. First of all, it's vital that you approach this story as historical, not as metaphor, not as myth, not as fairy tale, but as a literal, factual, historical description of a global flood. We have an elder that serves our church faithfully, and he carries with him into every interview for a new staff person this question, among others, but you know he's going to ask this question. The question I was asked, Pastor Steve, Pastor Mike was asked, others have been asked, is this, what do you do with the flood? Is it historical, or is it a metaphor, or is it something different? And I can tell you that all of your pastors and your staff here at South Shore Baptist Church believe this to be a historical, factual account of an actual global flood. This is not a myth. It is not a fairy tale. It is not a metaphor for something else. We believe it to be historically true. Not only do we believe this story to be historically true, Jesus believed this as well. You heard it earlier when Pastor Steve read from Matthew chapter 24. Jesus doesn't think of the story of Noah as a myth or as some other sort of quaint fairy tale. He understood it to have actually happened. If Jesus finds the story historically accurate, I want to be on Jesus' side in this assessment of things. Here's another thing that might inform the way you approach this story. We need to acknowledge the fact that this is not the only ancient flood account that we know of. In fact, there are many, many different ancient stories of global floods. In fact, some of them are older than this writing. One of the more popular and more well-known is called the Epic of Gilgamesh. And so what happens your freshman year of college is you're five minutes into your lit class and your secular professor assigns you uh, to read the Epic of Gilgamesh and the story of Noah and to compare and contrast the two stories. And all of a sudden, you've never heard of the Epic of Gilgamesh or all these other ancient flood accounts. And your professor says, see, look, this is older than what, the, what Moses wrote. And so it's clear that Moses borrowed from the Epic of Gilgamesh to concoct his own story that would then be incorporated into Hebraic life. And your faith begins to deconstruct. And you wear a lot of black turtlenecks and black eyeliner when you come home at Thanksgiving. And it's just, ah! it's just it's a crisis of faith. But listen, we've known about these flood accounts for generations. And they're not a threat to the veracity of Scripture. We don't have to hide them from our children lest they be poisoned. Read them. Study them. Familiarize yourself with them. And you'll see that while there are some similarities, they are in fact few. And the story of Noah is unique in itself. It is believable, trustworthy. The Bible is the very word of God. Don't be afraid of it. 
Don't be afraid to believe what it says. Don't, believe, don't be afraid to believe it in the face of any sort of criticism. That's our posture we take to this story this morning. It's true. It's trustworthy. It's accurate. And it's a real depiction of the judgment of God on sin. Knowing that God has judgment in store for a world full of sin, how are we to live our lives? How does this instruct us to live faithfully to the Lord? I want to show you three ways the judgment of God on a sinful world impacts our lives. And the first way is this. God's people live with knowledge of God's judgment. That may seem just too simple to even be noteworthy, but this is a hot topic, the fact that God judges sinners. It's a personal judgment. It's an individual judgment. This is not a message that is popular in our world, and it is losing popularity in our churches. And so as God's people, we have to be aware of his judgment. So why is God going to send a flood here in this story? Well, the reason is clear. God lays out his reasons in chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. Look at it with me. Listen to how God describes the state of affairs on earth. Chapter 6, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with wickedness. God saw how corrupt the earth was, for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. Then God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. In our reading of Genesis, we've seen an intensification of sin from chapter 3, where sin enters the scene in the garden, to chapter 4, where Cain murders his brother Abel. To the further expansion of sin throughout chapter 4, we get to chapter 6 last week and we read of how utterly corrupt all of culture, all of society had become. And God's original mandate to mankind, you'll remember, is this in Genesis chapter 1 verse 28. God told Adam and Eve, here's your command, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They are to fill the earth with others who bear the image of God. So in other words, they are to fill the earth with the glory of God. But what has humanity done instead? I hope you didn't miss this line in verse 13. God says this, the earth is filled with wickedness. They haven't filled the earth with the glory of God. They have filled the earth to overflowing with wickedness. This is not the story of a capricious God who just one day flippantly decides to wipe people out. This is a God whose own creation has rebelled in full against him as the holy, holy, holy creator God, the sovereign over every living being, the one whom mankind has sinned and rebelled against. He holds the right to lay out his judgment, and so he does. God's judgment begins with a verdict. It's a verdict on the lives of people on earth. And his verdict is clear in the story. He looks over the whole earth and he finds everyone corrupt by sin, filling the earth with sin with the exception of one family. That's Noah's family. This can be hard to accept. That verdict can be challenging to accept even for religious people. Because we might counter this way. Well, surely there were some people who didn't deserve to die. What about the children? What about those who didn't know? How can this be a God of love? 
Why didn't he just speak to them and warn them? If God's speech could keep us from sin, Adam and Eve never would have had a chapter 3 moment. I find most often that when we push back on God's verdict on the sinfulness of man, we're arguing for ourselves, not necessarily for someone else. Our concern might be, well, if God judged people in Genesis 6 this way, then how will he judge me? I can answer that. You're guilty. Every one of us in this room, guilty of sin. No one in this room is innocent. No one in this room is sinless. In comparison to a holy God, we are wicked, desperate sinners. To use the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, we are by nature objects of God's wrath. The standard we are judged by is the standard of God's perfection. We are not judged in comparison to one another. I don't just have to outdo you in order to earn God's favor and blessing one day. We have to measure up to God's standard of perfect, sinless righteousness. You may not like that standard. You may wish that he judged us according to a different standard. After all, you've got a lot going for you. You're successful in your work. You are hardworking. You care about your family. You care about people. You're active in the community. You have a neutral carbon footprint. Every pet you've ever possessed has, was adopted from an animal shelter. You recycle. You, you, you're, you're a veteran. You're a voter. You're patriotic. You, you care about people who are hurting. You volunteer. You serve people who are in need. Look, I would love to be your neighbor. That's the kind of person you are. But the standard we are judged against is not the standard of what makes a good human, but it's the standard of the holiness of God. And in that judgment, every single one of us falls short. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 3, There are none who are righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Have you lied? Have you lusted? Have you gossiped? Have you slandered? Have you stolen? Have you done more? You have fallen short of the glory of God. God's judgment, his verdict is accurate and just. We are all sinners against God. God's judgment doesn't just include verdict, but it also includes punishment. And the punishment in our story is clear. God will send a flood that will destroy every living creature on earth except for Noah's family. The flood is terrifying and final judgment on sinful humanity. We do not have another flood like this one to fear. We'll learn more about God's promise in our study of the second half of the story next week. So we don't have this sort of flood to fear. However, the Bible tells us repeatedly about the terrifying and final judgment of God awaiting sinful humanity, and that is an eternity in hell. What kind of God sends people to hell? Well, when people adopt a way of life that leaves the living God out of account, he allows them to experience the consequences of their own choice. He withdraws his presence and his blessings from them, and this is what makes hell horrifying. We've I think the Bible writers have used under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit some of the most terrifying language possible 
to describe a terror beyond the description of language. Fire that's eternal and other horrible things to describe what it's like to be in the absence of God. It is eternal torment. As you and I go about our lives every day, every person we pass will face the judgment of God. At every intersection, every car that goes in front of you, that driver will face the judgment of God. Every coworker, every family at Little League, every person you know, every person you pass in the grocery store, every person you see on television, everyone with a microphone, every human on this planet will face the judgment of God. And as you can imagine, this is not a popular message. Uh, one time I was outside of Fenway prior to a ball game. And there was a gentleman walking down the street with a large sign announcing the coming judgment of God and imploring people to repent and turn to Jesus. He carried a bullhorn as he begged people to turn to Jesus. I could barely hear what he was saying, though, over the response of the crowd, which was nonstop swearing and jeering. This is not a popular message. The world doesn't want to hear it. Because to speak of a God who judges sinners, not just sin in general, but sinners specifically, it flies in the faith of our secular mantra that we just live our truth. The center of truth is no longer the God who created all things. It's me, a created being, who can barely match my socks in the morning, let alone identify truth and live according to it. But that's what the world has chosen to value. And so this message is not popular, it is hated, it's detested. And so because of that, there may come a time when you consider downplaying the doctrine of God's judgment. Perhaps we shouldn't talk about it, maybe we should just talk about God's love instead. But I want to make sure you understand the serious dangers of downplaying or neglecting outright the judgment of God on sin. I've just written down a few of those dangers that I want you to see. What happens when we deny the judgment of God in sin. Well, first of all, it makes the Bible untrue. Second, it makes God a liar. Third, it destroys the evangelistic mission of the church. Fourth, it puts souls in eternal peril. Why would they come to Christ if, if all they've got to do is just live their, their truth? Why would they trust Him and love Him if, if God already has given a stamp of approval as long as they just do their best? You put their souls in peril, and then finally, it nullifies the cross. What's the point of Jesus dying for our sins if there is no judgment to come? We do real serious damage when, out of a fear of hurting people or offending people, we shy away from this very important doctrine. Now, here's what a mistake we often make when it comes to dealing with speaking about the judgment of God. Two mistakes. One is we deny it outright and we just emphasize the love of God. Clearly we understand why this is problematic. We cannot deny the judgment of God and only speak of the love of God. The, those things don't make sense. The other mistake we make is we swing hard in the other direction and we just go all in on judgment leaving love out of the equation altogether. We become like the Oprah Winfrey's of divine judgment. You're going to hell, and you're going to hell, and everyone's going to hell. And can I just tell you that that 
sort of posture, that, that way of speaking and thinking where God is all judgment on everyone except for you is just as heretical and unbiblical and anti-Christ as the liberal alternative. It is horrific and it destroys people and it is wrong. So we're not to do away with the judgment of God and only speak the love of God as if that would make sense. Nor are we to do away with the love of God and only announce everyone's going to hell except for me and the people I like. But rather, we are to live with an awareness of these things that God's judgment and God's love go hand in hand together. And so if we hold to the reality of God's judgment and God's love in tandem, then all of these dangers are reversed. We'll believe what the Bible has to say about God's judgment on sin, and the Bible is trustworthy, not just in the diagnosis, but also in the cure. And God himself is trustworthy and holy. And then we'll go to the ends of the earth to point people to Jesus Christ, and we will see souls rescued by faith in Christ, and Christ's death on the cross is our incredible shelter. The dangers are eliminated. And we experience the rescue and the salvation that God has for us. But brothers and sisters, we must live in the knowledge and understanding of the judgment of God on sin. It is sure. It is terrifying. It is final. We must know this. Second way the judgment of God on sin impacts the believer's life is this. God's people live obediently in wicked days. When we look at the world around us, all the decay, all the things that make us wring our hands and, and think, oh, what a horrible time we live in. How are we to live in the midst of all of those things? Following Noah's example, we are to live lives of obedience. In the midst of this wicked world in Genesis chapter 6, there's this fascinating man named Noah. And I want you to listen to how Noah is introduced to us in chapter 6, verse 9. We're told this, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries, Noah walked with God. He was righteous. That means he is viewed as being right in the eyes of God. Not the eyes of his contemporaries, but in the eyes of God. He was blameless. That doesn't mean he was without sin, but it means that he was without fault before God. He walked with God. This is the same phrase used to describe his ancestor Enoch in chapter 5. And this means that Noah only goes where God leads him. And there's another important way of describing Noah in the story. Noah was persistent in his obedience to God. He's persistent. We're told in chapter 5 that Noah was 500 years old when his boys were born. And then we're told in chapter 7 that Noah was 600 years old when he entered the ark. Do a little math, crunch the numbers, 100 years he spent a hundred years preparing for the flood. A hundred years of building a boat in the middle of nowhere. Uh, we read it and it just goes by just in a verse. But it's a hundred years of hauling in the lumber and putting the boards up, building the frame, getting it all in place. A hundred years of listening to the jeers and the mockery and, and uh, all the insults of those that he lived around. A hundred years of utter isolation. A hundred years of being the crazy man who's building a boat in the middle of no place. A hundred years of day in and day out announcing the coming judgment of God with every board that's put in place. A hundred years of proclaiming the grace of God to any who would come and enter the ark with him and his family. 
a hundred years of being the crazy one all the time. But Noah's persistent. He, he endures in his obedience. A most important detail about Noah that's repeated in this story is that he did everything God commanded him. Four different times in this story, we're told that Noah did what God commanded him. The world around him is desperately wicked, but Noah and his family alone do what God commands. Noah has no support, no encouragement, no local church except for his own family, no worldly reason to build such a boat on dry land. But Noah had a word from the Lord, and he did what God commanded him. One word from the Lord was worth a hundred years of ridicule and mockery. So Christian, what are you to do when sin increases in the world around you? We are to be like Noah. You are to be righteous and blameless and walk with God in persistent obedience. God's word to you has not changed. However, our society changes and shifts towards the celebration of sin, the normalization of sin. However that happens, God's instructions have not become less clear to the church. Whether you are alone like Noah, or alone like Jeremiah, or alone like Daniel, or alone like Micah, or alone like Jesus, you are to obey the Word of God and do everything He has commanded you. You're to walk with God no matter the situation on the outside. The world needs men and women who live in obedience to God's word. The world needs Christians who will rise above the culture in love for God and love for neighbor. The world needs men and women who detest personal sin and desire personal holiness. The world needs some Genesis 6.22 followers of Jesus, people who do everything just as God commanded them. What do you do in a world? How do you live in this world that's facing the impending judgment of God? You live in obedience to the clear word of God. So God's people have to live in knowledge of God's judgment, live obediently in wicked days. And then finally, God's people have to trust in God's protection. We've got to trust in God's protection. So all of chapter 7 tells of Noah and his family and the animals entering the ark. The Lord shut them in the ark, and then for 40 days, water filled the earth from above and below. Just as God said would happen, everyone and everything died. Chapter 7, verse 23 has to be one of the most sobering verses in the whole Bible. Look at it with me. Chapter 7, verse 23. He wiped out every living thing that was on the face of the earth from mankind to livestock to creatures that crawl to the birds of the sky and they were wiped off the earth. Only Noah was left and those that were with him in the ark. Noah survived not just because he believed what God said about the judgment to come, he survived because he also believed what God said about how he would be delivered through that judgment. It's one thing to say, God, I believe you that judgment is coming. It's another to say, God, I believe in the way you have provided for me to be delivered from that judgment. The writer of Hebrews gives us some incredible insight into how Noah understood 
the Lord's instructions to him. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, we're told this, by faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah's protection came by believing God. Noah was saved by faith. It's commonplace for Christians and churches to look at the state of the world and to be fearful and worrisome. But if God gave his one and only son to die in your place for your sins, and God the Son took God the Father's wrath on sin in full, then won't he bring you through these wicked days and into his eternal kingdom? Of course he will. He's our faithful heavenly Father. He keeps his promises. Do not let sin in the world around you shift you from your faith in Jesus Christ. But what if you're not a follower of Jesus? Now, I want to talk to you directly for a moment. I hope you're not upset or angry with me because of the way I've spoken so plainly this morning about these spiritual matters. It can be easy to grow offended when someone says you're a sinner and you're going to face the judgment of God. And what that ultimately means is that you would spend an eternity in hell. But I want you to understand, I don't share that out of a lack of concern or love for you. It's actually out of an abundance of care and love that I would share that message with you. If you think about it, in our lives, we warn people we love all the time about danger. A first-time driver gets a lot of warnings from people who love that kid. It's with that same heart that I, I'm sharing these biblical truths with you today. So I want to warn you, out of compassion and out of love, friend, you are in great danger. You're a sinner and God is angry with you for your sin. God holds you responsible for every violation of his law throughout your life. And he said plainly that unless your sins are forgiven through Jesus, you will pay the penalty for them through an eternity of suffering in hell. You will not get away with blaming your sins on other people or pointing to the injustices as you've defined injustice that you've endured in your life. We can't blame uh, our parents. We can't blame Satan. We can't blame God himself. If you do not repent and believe in Christ, you will die in your sins and, and be lost forever. And here's perhaps the, the most challenging part. It's not enough to not want to go to hell and instead to want to go to heaven. It's not enough to want a destination. You are to want God himself. He's not just, the, the value of God is not just that he gives us rescue. The value of God is God himself. He's the treasure. Do you know that in Noah's day, as the water filled the earth, there were many outside the ark who wanted the rescue, but they didn't want Noah's God. You have to want God to submit to his authority, to confess your sin and your absolute need for Jesus Christ. You have to bear the inconvenience and the shame of being Jesus' disciple. You have to want him. So what are you to do then? 
Today, friend, you have to look to Jesus and put your faith in him. And here's why Jesus specifically is so important. Jesus was God in the flesh. He was fully God and fully man. And since he was the God-man, he really lived a perfect, sinless life. And he's the one and only perfect sacrifice for our sin. God the Father sent God the Son to die in your place for your sin. On the cross, Jesus swallows the flood of God's wrath on sin in full. All the terror, the horror, the finality of it, he took it all on himself because he loved you. He loves the Father, and this is what he was sent to do. He died on the cross. Three days later, he rose from the dead, having conquered death. And his promise to you is this. If you will turn from your sin and your self-righteousness, the word we use is repent, if you'll turn from all that junk, And if you will set your heart on Christ, if you will love him, desire him, give him your life, you'll be saved. He'll be your father, you'll be his child. There's an eternal fundamental change in your relationship with God. And if I'm someone who does not know Christ, and I'm reading this story. This is, this is, I want to understand what this judgment means for me and how I can experience the rescue, the protection that comes through Jesus. And so it could be that this very day you're ready to turn your life to Jesus, and if so, I would love to talk to you after the service today. Or Maybe you're here with a friend that you know loves Jesus and you want to talk to them, but I would want to settle that before I step off this property. I don't want to give eternity another moment to wait. I want to know here and now. God has called me. God has awakened faith in me. God is saving me even now. I want you to settle that before you leave today. And maybe you're not ready, but you're interested in learning more, understanding more. Then here's what I want to encourage you to do. I I want you to make use of the means that God normally uses to bring people to faith in Him. Read the Bible and pray and continue coming to church and listen to biblical preaching and ask others to pray for you. And I believe that if you seek God in these ways, you will one day find that you are indeed in His hands. He will be your Father. You will be His child when you trust in God's protection through faith in Jesus Christ. It's what we have to do to escape the judgment to come. How do we live knowing the judgment of God awaits a sinful world? Well, we live in the knowledge of God's judgment, in obedience to his word, trusting in the protection he has given us in Christ. And so what do we do now? With this understanding of this story, what what do we do with it now? Do we run out the door yelling at passersby that they're going to face the judgment of God any moment? No, that's biblically unbalanced. Do we run out the door and deny the judgment of God and only speak the love of God? No, that would be biblically imbalanced as well. The Bible requires both the judgment of God and the love of God in order for us to clearly articulate the gospel. Because of our sin, we will be judged, but because of God's love, there is rescue through faith in Jesus Christ. And so what you and I must do in light of this reality of God's impending judgment is we must do common, ordinary things that have atomic power. You don't need to build a boat, but you need to walk with your God in a long obedience. Obey the word of the Lord. Love God and love others. 
forgive those who have offended you. God's people go the extra mile. We are merciful. We serve people. We pray for one another. We don't keep score. We are humble. We worship together. We pray for one another, pray for ourselves. We tell the story of the gospel. We continue in our long obedience. Jesus is our complete and total treasure. This is how God's people live here and now with a judgment to come. The doctrine of universal human guilt must make us humble and not judgmental. And the doctrine of eternal punishment must move us to prayer and sacrifice, not to indifference to the fate of our fellow human beings. As one writer put it, Christians should be the most serious, the most holy, and the most happy of all people on the face of the earth. And as we live this way, with the courage and the stubborn obedience of Noah, we will have a privilege that Noah never did. We will see people saved as they trust in Jesus, and the earth will be filled with the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, I'm grateful when we have a passage to study that speaks of your love, your compassion, your nearness, your kindness. But I know that my heart needs to hear again and often of your serious judgment on sin. Father, I, along with uh, my fellow brothers and sisters in the faith, we praise you that by our faith in Christ, your judgment in our sin has gone to the cross. It has been unleashed in full there. Jesus took it in full there. There is no more judgment for us to experience. And yet we must know that this is true, that sin will be judged, that we would on our own pursue holiness and also warn those around us and extend to them the hope of Jesus Christ. So Father, help us to walk in obedience as we take serious sin and your judgment on it. May we not trivialize the death of Christ on the cross by excusing our sin or justifying hellish behaviors. Lord, don't let us swing too far away from judgment, mutilating and perverting love as you've shown us in the Gospels, nor let us swing so hard towards judgment that we mutilate it and turn you into some raving lunatic in the sky. But God, rather, let the Gospel fill our hearts and fill our world as we walk in obedience with you. Lord, this morning, someone in here has heard your call on their life. So let this be the day that their eyes are open. Lord God, bring salvation to your precious child even this day. Let them say yes to Christ and know eternal life in him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Cody. As we prepare for our last song, I am struck by how well Jennifer chose for us. She, she preps these songs before she goes. Everyone needs compassion a love that's never failing. Let mercy fall on me. Everyone needs forgiveness, the kindness of our Savior, the hope of nations. He can move mountains. He is mighty to save. He is the author of our salvation, and he has conquered the grave. Will you stand as we respond with our hearts personally? <laughs>